Well, friends, it's good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Adam, and it really is one of my favorite things about life uh, to be senior pastor at our church. I wonder if you've seen the movie Catch Me If You Can. It's based on the life events of Frank Abagnale Jr., who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Leo! And uh, he poses as a pilot and a lawyer and a doctor, kind of jet-setting around the country, forging checks along the way. Checks are these things we used to use before Venmo. <laughs> it was a sheet, a little sheet of paper that you signed and could be worth a lot of money. It was crazy. Uh, and the Tom Hanks plays FBI agent Carl Hanratty, who is pursuing Abagnale and trying to lock him up for all of his fraud. So as an audience, we find ourselves rooting for Frank Abagnale kind of two different ways. The first way is as a charming con man, we, you know, it's kind of fun to watch him elude the, the feds. And then as the movie turns out, the, eventually Frank Abagnale is captured and we root for him a second time as the con man begins applying all the tools of the trade, working for the FBI to help catch other fraudulent criminals. Because what happened was Carl Hanratty after in the movie, after Abagnale is put in jail, he kind of maintains that relationship on some level and will actually take some of the harder cases to get Frank's advice on how to solve them. And so that's what leads to him working for the FBI. And, and I think we're, we're drawn to the story because it's, it's a, a fun thing to see the bad guy kind of switch teams and start working for the good guys. Here's the thing, almost none of that happened in real life. Like it talks about being based on true events, but that's a statement that can apply very broadly. Pan Am Airlines, who Abagnale says he stole millions of dollars from in checks, has come out publicly and been like, yeah, we would have noticed that. <laughs> like $2 million is a lot of money. And that's not what happened. There's no official record of Abagnale working for the FBI as he claims. Journalist and author Alan C. Logan actually published a book uh, recently called The Greatest Hoax on Earth. And he combed through all the things that could be verified of Abagnale's story and debunked almost all of them. So catch me if you can. Great movie, but not based in reality. And this is the arbitrary nature of cancel culture. That's what we've been looking at the last two weeks. I told you a couple weeks ago about an author named Jonah Lear. He made up some things in one of his books and his career is over. Frank Abagnale makes up a bunch of stuff and they make a movie and Broadway musical about it. I, I don't know how that works. I don't know who decides who gets to keep their job or their book deal or what. In the series called Canceled, we've been exploring the answer to the question, how should Christians deal or intersect with cancel culture? What's the Christian response? And, and you can find a lot of discussion about cancel culture online. This is my definition of it. It's when an individual or an entity or a brand violates a social boundary and is decredited and removed from public legitimacy and participation. And so the first week we talked about you know, accountability is necessary. That can be a good thing. And then last week we looked at, well, after we have made a mistake, how do we recover from failure? And so actions clearly have consequences. But in my estimation, this is where cancel culture differ, differs from calls for accountability. 
Cancel culture is differentiated from cries for consequences in two ways. This is just my view. The first way is when it's used as a form of social control. Like, oh, well, you can't even say that or think like that. And or the second definition of cancel culture, what we've really tried to zoom in on, is when it becomes a form of entertainment or when people pile on to other folks online or in person and there's like this sense of glee about their failure. So this week we're zooming in on how we can get past the past. And, and what I hope we'll discover today as we study God's word is that Jesus offers radical forgiveness and inspires radical obedience. Jesus offers radical forgiveness and inspires radical obedience. If you ever wanna know what the point of the sermon is, I try and put it right up on the screen here, right at the beginning. Just so we all, we all know, that's it. So part, I think part of the reason we like stories like Catch Me If You Can is again, it's so improbable to see someone's conversion in the case of Abigail or DiCaprio's portrayal of him. We see his conversion from fugitive to federal agent. And he's using all his knowledge and his experience and goes from, from working for himself and catching criminals instead of cashing forged checks. Well, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction because in our scripture today, we're gonna look at the dramatic conversion as Paul goes from persecuting Christians to starting churches. We're gonna read from the book of 1 Timothy and that's a letter that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, became part of our New Testament. And in this section, we get like a biographical view uh, of, of Paul kind of describing himself. And these are some of the most beloved verses in the New Testament. So we're gonna start in 1 Timothy chapter one with verse 13. Paul writes, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So it's helpful for us to know that Paul had a unique pedigree. He was both schooled in the laws of Judaism as well as a Roman citizen. And that was, that was kind of a unique combo in the first century. And he speaks of, of life before knowing Jesus as blasphemous because he very zealously, that's the word he uses, he passionately defended his beliefs uh, and defended Judaism against this kind of upstart other version of faith of Christianity, what we would call that now. He, he, he was against followers of Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul says that he opposed the church of God and then he did so violently. You know what I was like, he says, when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. Paul's, Paul's reputation preceded him. You know, other Christians knew he was infamous that he was known for entering into houses, dragging out men and women and committing them to prison. But then an amazing thing happened. We go back to 1 Timothy verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, who's also known as Saul, and that could be kind of a tricky thing, but they sound similar. Paul is the Roman version of Saul, the Hebrew form of, of the name. So Paul was on his way to another city and he was on his, on his way there to root out some other Christians so that there, if he found any who belonged to the way, the way was uh, what the Christian religion was called in the first century. 
So the word Christians, you can see that uh, word used, I think only twice in the New Testament, definitely once in the book of Acts. But before then, people belonged to the way, the way of Jesus. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. So long story short, Paul is temporarily blinded and has this incredible encounter with Jesus. And kind of over the course of a few days, he's instructed by Jesus, he receives teaching from him and then is commissioned into ministry. That's what made Peter, an, uh, Peter that's what made Paul an apostle. An apostle is someone who learned directly from Jesus and then was sent into ministry by him. And so you can imagine when, when Paul has this crazy weekend that the other Christians might've been a little skeptical. This is the same dude that had like warrants out for us and now he's on our team. And so one of those Christians was Ananias and he receives a word from God. This man is my chosen instrument, referring to Paul, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's an ominous verse. We're gonna come back to that. So Paul takes the same zeal, the same passion he had formerly applied to defense of Judaism, but now instead of hunting down Christians, he travels around the world building them up. This incredible conversion story. And one of the most unusual suspects in Paul has been chosen to do God's work. And Paul claims this beautifully. He pens this to his trusted protege, Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now at this point, I, I, I thought about switching off the iPad and just kind of, I mean, that's it. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what to add to this. I mean, it just preaches itself. Paul was God's chosen instrument so that everybody would know that there's nobody re beyond God's redemption. He chose the dude who rooted for Christians to be locked up or worse. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that Saul approved of people being stoned to death. They were martyrs and that Saul signed off on that. And so it's not just in spite of Paul's past, but explicitly because of Paul's past that he's chosen by God to spread the religion, as he says, of, of uh, beyond to the Gentiles. Gentiles is a word for folks who aren't Jewish. So he's gonna carry the message, not the religion. He's gonna carry the message of Jesus beyond Israel out into the world because of his past explicitly. This is good news, friends, that your past doesn't disqualify you out of God's story. God uses imperfect people because as it turns out, that's the only kind there are. God uses imperfect people because that's all we got. And, and what an example for us. Paul's like job title is worst of sinners. 
That's good news for us. Paul's the example of that, of God's radical forgiveness that Jesus offers him. And then it's because of God's radical forgiveness that Paul is inspired to respond in radical obedience. We read earlier about God's prediction of Paul having to suffer for God's name in the course of doing God's work. And Paul spells this out in in what kind of reads almost like a resume of sorts. This is from another one of his letters in 2 Corinthians. And this is quite quite a hefty list, so buckle up. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. And as I was reading through these, I thought to myself, I think I might have thrown in the towel after the second shipwreck. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be funny. Like, shipwreck two, that's my limit. That's my limit. I'm done. But he kept going. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches these communities that he would help start and then entrust it to them and go do another one somewhere else. Paul was willing to sacrifice greatly for the cause of Christ in response to the grace that had been poured out to him radically, abundantly. So he accepted Jesus' radical forgiveness and he was inspired to radical obedience. See, there's a version of Christianity out there that says, well, if I just say this prayer, Jesus will forgive me if I still kind of just do what I want to do. I'm, in my view, I'm good to go. I raised my hand. I cried a little bit. All right. This is what happens when we think about faith in Christ being rooted in a one-time decision as opposed to a lifetime of discipleship. When we truly receive the abundant grace, then we respond and live a life in response to that. I love how 1 John puts it. We love because he first loved us. And this is like the foundation of Methodist theology, that our lives are lived out in response to God's grace for us. I mean, think about the difference. I know this happened in my life. Like in seventh grade, when I present my report card to my parents, see, this was before they could know things in real time as the semester was progressing. Oh, it was, the dark ages were good for me, friends. It would have been bad. Uh, So so I don't know what y'all are gonna do, but uh, when I present my report card to my parents, a lot of my motivations were to either avoid punishment, I don't wanna be grounded because I didn't do well because I didn't try hard enough, or to gain reward. I'd like to continue to get allowance, please. I'd like to continue to see my friends. I'd like to avoid being grounded. So that was my seventh grade mindset is I wanna, I wanna perform in order to either avoid consequences or to get what I want. Well, I think early on, we can take that approach to God. Well, I'm, I, I've heard about the alternatives to not believing in God, so I'd like to avoid those and maybe uh, some perks for me also. Right, So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my little Christian resume in hopes to avoid punishment and get what I want. We can have that mindset. And that's, there's worse places to be, by the way. 
John Wesley would often quote uh, the book of Psalms, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's worse places to be. But I compare my mindset as a middle schooler to my mindset as a seminary student. Now by this time, I'm like, I don't know, 28, 30. I have my own house. So I'm not concerned about being grounded by my parents, right? You should be very concerned if I was. Uh, but now when I show my folks my seminary transcript, it's because I wanna show them how hard I've tried to work because I wanted to, because I wanna make them proud. I'm no longer afraid of consequences. I just wanna do my best to make my parents proud. No one made me do that. I'm not doing it out of fear. It's because my desires have changed, see? My desires have been transformed from either avoiding punishment or pursuing perks. You know, I love the alliteration. I just can't, it just comes out. So in our Christian maturity, we move from pursuing perks and avoiding punishment to having our desires transformed by the radical grace Jesus offers us. And we don't always do this in this service, but there's, there's a, a line in the Methodist liturgy around communion that I love. And it says, free us for joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. That's a life lived in response to God's grace. Not because you have to, or you're gonna be punished if you don't, but because you want to. We love because he first loved us. Jesus offers radical forgiveness and inspires radical obedience in our response. See, cancel culture wants to discard people based on the worst decision they've ever made. Our faith says that we can get past the past. And friends, that's the good news. And Paul is God's chosen example that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But that's not the finish line, that's the starting line. And so as I've tried to describe, like a, the difference between seventh grade Adam and seminary Adam is that true, mature, vital faith in Jesus results in radical obedience. Not because you have to, but because you want to. It's our desires that get transformed. And I, I, don't, I try not to use a bunch of cliches, but sometimes I just can't help it, friends. Maybe you've heard this. God loves you so much to take you in just the way you are. And God loves you enough not to leave you that way. Can't put it any better than that. I saw I'd use the bumper sticker, man. When the gospel of John introduces Jesus in the first chapter, it encapsulates this both and reality of the gospel. It tells us that Jesus came to us full from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus comes and literally embodies both of these. Grace, that God would offer us a gift we didn't deserve. The classic definition of grace is unmerited favor. But Jesus also came embodying the truth that in our condition, we are unable to save ourselves and we are estranged from God. Truth describes reality. Truth describes the way things really are. Jesus showed his grace in calling to himself the least and the lowly. He said things like, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. But he also announced the truth that we need to repent. That was one of his first things he ever preached, repent for the kingdom of God is near, that we would turn away from our sin. Jesus said very hard things like whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So for the rest of my life, 
I will contemplate the simultaneous grace and truth found in Jesus. One is crucial as the other. And, and when we think about this model or this motif, grace and truth, it starts to, to be evident in lots of places. I mean, think about the verse we read. You can see it both here. We are sinners. That's the truth. We are sinners, hard truth, who Christ came into the world to save. That's grace. Jesus offers us radical forgiveness. That's grace. And inspires radical obedience. That's truth. And my guess is, that if you're like me, you might lean towards one or the other. Maybe you grew up in a church that leaned towards one or the other. Maybe you had parents who leaned towards one or the other. Psychologist Henry Cloud says that truth without grace is judgment. Some of us grew up that way. And when it's all truth and no grace, we end up hopeless and discouraged. On the other hand, grace without truth results in a lack of limits. Now, some of us would prefer life that way, but with license to do whatever we want, whenever we want, when we're left to our own devices without anyone setting truthful and helpful limits for us, we'll discover that life empty as well. So I think the Christian response to truth, excuse me, the Christian response to cancel culture lies in, in the simultaneous presence of grace and truth. The truth is actions have consequences. So accountability is a necessary thing and a good thing. You know, some people will say, well, the first amendment guarantees me the right to free speech. That is true. But the constitution does not shield you from the consequences of your free speech. As someone who kind of talks for a living, you gotta think about what you say. It will live on the internet forever, <laughs> right? But beyond the constitution, the truth is that we should look to scripture to tell us what is in or out of bounds to say. So even over and above the first amendment is the royal law as the book of James describes it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look to that law to figure out what's in or out of bounds to say. Now, at the same time, grace is available to everybody for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we're gonna cancel everybody who ever said something they regret or made a mistake, then eventually we will all wind up on that list. So, so for about a year now, I've thought a lot about the following two scenarios. Like what do we do with theologians or pastors who have great teaching but end up making terrible choices? What do we do with that? And then similarly, can we separate the brilliant art that we love from an artist we wouldn't morally endorse. And so after, after a lot of prayerful consideration, I think I've arrived at my conclusion and my final answer, it depends. <laughs> How you like that? <laughs> Suspenseful. 
And I'm not trying to weasel out of this. Here's what I mean. I think the way we answer those questions, what do we do with theologians or pastors who have great teaching but then experience moral failure? And, and what do we do with artists whose music we love but whose choices we can't align with? I think the way we answer those questions may reveal which way we tend to lean towards grace or truth. And so this is my best attempt to wrap up our series. Here's my best attempt at a pragmatic response to cancel culture. There's two things I'm convinced we need to avoid being. The first is being a Pharisee. The Pharisees uh, were the religious ultra elite in Jesus' time. They opposed him. They worked towards eliminating him. And from the Pharisees' perspective, if you send, you are out. Off the list. Canceled. They loved nothing more than appearing righteous while judging those beneath their piety. The Pharisees were centered on rules and technicalities. You can find Jesus' harshest words in the New Testament for these guys, the Pharisees. They were all truth and no grace, 100%. But the second thing to avoid is being a hedonist. Did a deep dive into undergrad to plop that word out, let me tell you. Hedonism is a worldview that puts pleasure at the center of life. Essentially, the slogan of hedonism is, if it feels good, go for it. If it feels good, do it. My wife and two children were out of town this weekend, and that gives me the chance, the license to do things I wouldn't do normally, like eat Casey's pizza for multiple meals in a row. <laughs> mm. Let me tell you, friends, I'm sad to report that life without limits is not good for us. <laughs> Access, excess and indulgence are marks of hedonism. See, it's all grace and no truth. You can do whatever. I believe it was Ja Rule said that you can do whatever you like, right? That's hedonism. If it feels good, do it. Just do it. And so my aim is that after the pattern of Jesus, that we could leave room for both truth and grace no matter what our preference in the situation, that we could avoid both being a judgmental Pharisee and a hedonist whose only standard is gratification. Do you see the balance? That two things could be held together, both true at the same time, that actions have consequences, but that simultaneously no one should be viewed as unredeemable. As Christians, I pray that we would not succumb to the spirit of the age and join in on canceling people for our own entertainment. May we remember that one of our greatest heroes in the faith is a self-described worst sinner. Hall of Fame, number one VIP worst sinner. May we live lives that embrace Jesus' radical forgiveness and respond with radical obedience. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for the chance to be together, to hear from your word, to sing praises to you, and to lift our prayers to your ears, to your heart. God, we admit to you that, um, as we read in Romans, that we have fallen short of your glory, of the life you've called us to, and that we come to you in need as sinners. We are people who are sick and need the medicine of the good news. 
So God, as, as we pursue the life you've called us to, help us not to be Pharisaic, to do the comparison game. Well, at least I haven't done that or oh, I can't believe they did this. But to be people who rejoice in the radical grace you offer, not only us, but everybody that we'll encounter. And God, may we not abuse the grace you've given us as license for, for grace to abound, that sin would abound even more as your, as your word says, but that we would respond with a desire of joyful obedience, not because we're scared or because we want the perks, but simply because we are the children who want to please their heavenly father. God, we give you thanks that you first loved us. We give you thanks for sending your son, Jesus, full of grace and truth. May we respond with radical obedience as your love transforms our desires to love you in return. Amen.